The first reading is from Acts chapter 11. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The epistle is from Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will be their God and will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this, write this down, 
for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. What a glorious hymn. We worship a living and reigning Lord and King. You may be seated. In the ninth century, the Emperor Charlemagne received all the adulation that this generation gives to sports heroes and movie stars and political, political politicians or powerful politicians. Having a commanding presence and someone who had his reign widespread, Charlemagne was honored by many people. Before he died, the emperor gave instructions as to how he was to be buried. He was to be buried with his Bible. He was to have his sword by his side. And the imperial crown was to be placed upon his head. His body remained this way for about 180 years. Until around 1000 AD, when they found his casket, or they found his tomb, I mean, and they opened it. Charlemagne's skeleton was found. And a bony finger, his bony finger, the bony finger of this once great skeleton was pointing to a particular verse in the Bible. And the verse was this. Matthew 16, 26. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Charlemagne's story reminds us that life is fleeting. Everyone dies, no exceptions. The toughest among us die, as do the most athletic, powerful, famous, and rich. Within a few generations, even the most celebrated of humanity usually rate little more than a historical footnote. William Shakespeare spoke of the fleeting reality of life when he wrote, we occupy our brief time on life stage and then we're gone. The psalmist writes, show me, O Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting is my life. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is nothing before you. Each man's life is but a breath. These, remind, these words remind us, and they even caution us, not to cling to this world. This world as we know it will pass away. We cannot take our treasures with us. We cannot take them to the new heaven and the new earth. And quite frankly, nor will we want to. Oh sure, we are to appreciate the blessings of this world. To be diligent in our life's vocation. To relax and enjoy God's good creation. We're to invest ourselves in hobbies and 
sporting interests and any other interests we have. We're to travel the world if we want. We're to go out and make money. And we're to be active citizens in our communities. But these earthbound activities are not to be the love of our lives. They're not to become our gods. They're not to be the things that we fear, love, and trust in above even God Himself. As our Lord queries, what good is it if a man gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? There is a true and trustworthy message that our Lord would have us teach. Teach to our children and our grandchildren and teach to the world and even apply to ourselves. And it serves as the basis for the sermon this morning. It's Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. You heard some of those words earlier. It says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. This verse is a vision. It's a vision of what occurs after the second coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and His judgment of some people to hell and some people to heaven. A new heaven and a new earth are visualized. Life as we know it comes to an end. And everything that we've worked for, every medal we've achieved, every possession we've owned, every dollar that's in our bank ceases to exist. And hence the need for us to have this eternal perspective that God gives to us in this vision. These realities that anchor us in eternity, not in this life. The text informs us that when the Creator recreates the heavens and the earth, all things will be new. New not only in the sense of being recent in date or recent in time, but new in being created and designed to supersede and to replace the old. So for example... The earth will resemble paradise before the fall. Famine, natural disasters, deforestation, pollution, greenhouse gas contamination, and all the other ecological issues that we deal with today, they will all cease. And we will have this grand new heaven and earth. Our bodies will be transformed. St. Paul describes our resurrected body in the following manner. The body that is sown, perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised a spiritual body. Our relationships with people will even change. Jesus says that there won't even be marriage in heaven. There won't be conflict in heaven. I'm looking forward to that one. Instead, our relationships will be filled with love and service. There won't be exploitation. There won't be abuse. There won't be misunderstandings. There won't be conflict. In this vision, John sees that there's no longer any sea. Many commentators think that the sea is a symbol. It's a symbol of disorder. It's a symbol of uncertainty. It's a symbol of conflict and evil that are so characteristic of the world in which we currently live. 
The sea represents all that has the potential to separate us from God. Our sin, our worldly possessions, even death itself. And in the new creation, there is none of this sea. There is no sea. There is no disorder. There is no uncertainty. There is no conflict. There is no evil. There's nothing that causes death. There's no more mourning. There's no more crying. There's no more pain. That's heaven. That's the new earth and the new heaven. The promise of a new heaven and a new earth Is this not something that needs to govern and influence the decisions that we make in our life and our choices and how we spend our time and our energy? Does the heaven and the new earth, the new heaven and new earth, does it not give us God's perspective of what is truly meaningful for our earthly existence? Is it not something that needs to be shared with other people so that they too will live their lives on earth in expectation of what God promises? Well, the vision continues. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. The holy city, the new Jerusalem, that represents God's chosen people. It represents his church. It's really quite a bizarre scene if you focus in on these words because it mixes two images. The city of the New Jerusalem is pictured as a bride who is now processing down the aisle to be presented to her groom, to behold her groom in all of his splendor. And who is the Lord's beloved bride? Well, it's the New Jerusalem. And who's the New Jerusalem? It's the church. And who is the church? You and me and all believers in Christ all around the world. And the groom has paid the dowry for his bride with his own precious blood. We're adorned in our baptismal gown and a golden crown rests upon our head because a crown of thorns was placed upon his. Last night I had the privilege of attending a wedding a wedding in, at Bethlehem Lutheran Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana. A friend of Sandra's and mine w- was married in that church last night. And anyways, as she came down, as our friend came down the aisle towards her groom, her husband-to-be, her husband who is now, I looked at the groom, and what did I see? I saw a huge smile form on his face as he beheld his bride walking towards him. This huge smile, you could just see the admiration and the love that he had for his his wife, his, his bride. And as I saw that, I thought of this text, which I'd been studying and preparing for this message. And I thought, isn't that the way that Jesus looks at his bride? Isn't that the way that he looks at you and me? Because we're his bride and he's our groom. He beholds us with love. He he beholds us with admiration. There's a huge smile on his face when he sees us. We are the always and forever of his life. 
we have the privilege of dwelling in his house, a house that he's prepared for us. We are his bride. He is our groom. The word dwelling in our text can be translated tented or tabernacled. And the word invokes images of the Old Testament times when the people of Israel were wandering through the wilderness and and God was tabernacling with them. He was leading them through the wilderness. And they set up a tent, a tabernacle, so that they might know that he was in their midst and they might worship him. God's dwelling among his people also reminds us of John chapter 1, verse 14, where we're told that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus came and dwelt among us. You see, long before the glorious wedding in heaven that's described in Revelation 21, the groom, Jesus Christ, dwelt with us and continues to dwell with us. It's like he came to us, he has come to us, in holy baptism, and he's betrothed himself to us. He's engaged himself to us. To have and to hold from this day forward for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death parts us. That's his commitment to us. And so he made our tears his tears. He made our mourning his mourning. He makes our pain his pain. And you know what? Death doesn't part us from this groom. Our groom the one who loves us so unconditionally that he died for us, sweeps us off our feet. And he carries us through the threshold of death to dwell with him as his bride in his house for all eternity. C.H. Spurgeon wrote in his book, The Morning and Evening, Jesus Christ Emmanuel, God with us in our nature, God with us in our sorrow, God with us in our life work, God with us in our punishment, God with us in our grave is now with us. Or rather, we with him in resurrection and ascension and triumph and second advent splendor. Isn't this a glorious scene? To see that we are so precious to our King, to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that he is our groom and that we are his bride. Is this not the message that we should be sharing with our children? Is this not the message that we should be sharing with our grandchildren and with many others? That our identity and our worth is not based on what we achieve. It's not based upon what our family name is. It's not based upon what we earn. It's not based upon the titles that we have after our name. It's not based upon our occupation. It's not even based upon our human sexuality. Our identity and our worth lies in the relationship that our groom has established with us and that the groom dwells with us or more appropriately that we live with him and we dwell with him in resurrection and ascension and triumph and second advent splendor. The revelation continues. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, 
I am making everything new. Joni Erickson Tata writes, We ask less of life because we know full well that more is coming in the next. The art of living with suffering is just the art of readjusting our expectations in the here and the now. Joni Erickson Tata is very capable of speaking to the sufferings of life. If you don't know her story, I'll just briefly share it with you. Shortly after her graduation from high school, Joni dove into a shallow lake and she broke her neck. Her life was forever changed, but there was one thing that did not change. Her Lord Jesus Christ, her groom, did not stop dwelling with her, even though she was going through some of the most horrible darkness and hopelessness of her life. Her groom stood by her, even on those times when she attempted suicide, because she was so overwhelmed by hopelessness due to her chronic nature of her injuries, knowing that she would never become well again. Her groom was by her side and speaking words of hope and encouragement from the sacred scriptures. He was healing her soul and mind, even while her body remained crippled. Her groom was always by her side in the faces and the voices of the nurses and the doctors and the physiotherapists and her Christian friends who ministered to her with word and prayer. And in 1982, Jesus even blessed Joni with a loving husband. Joni has lived her life since that fateful day trusting that Jesus, her groom, is always by her side. Trusting that one day, Jesus, her groom, will say to her, Joni, rise up and walk. And that will happen one day in the new heavens and the new earth. That's what Joni hangs on to. Tears, death, mourning, crying, pain, being alone. Can you imagine living life without Christ? Can you imagine living life without the hope that He is for us? Tragically, so many people in our lives, in our world, live without this hope. Do not our family and our friends and our neighbors and our classmates and our co-workers need to know that there is a new life, a new creation, free from sin and death awaiting them in heaven? Do they not need to know that there's a living Lord who lives, can live with them right here and now in the brokenness of their lives? Is this not the message that we should be investing our time and our energy and resources in teaching our children and our children's children and, and their children? Is this not the teaching that we should use to govern our lives each and every day of our own life? As we go through the trials and tribulations of life, but doing so, knowing that there's this joyful expectation and promise that we will live in the new heavens and the new earth with our Lord. A story circulated on the internet and through email a few years ago I'm not sure if the story actually happened, but it does tell of a woman who had terminal illness and she was told she only had about three months to live. And so she was getting everything in order and she contacted her pastor and said, Pastor, I'd like to come and talk with you and make some final details about the worship service and so on, my funeral service. 
And so as she met with the pastor, she told the pastor of which hymn she wanted sung. She said, these are the Bible passages I want you to read. She, she even took him into the room and showed him the dress that she wanted to be dressed in and buried in. And as the pastor prepared to leave, the woman suddenly remembered something. She said, there's one more thing, pastor. What's that? Asked the pastor. This is important. I want to be buried with a fork in my right hand. The pastor shook his head. He didn't know what to say to this odd request. To be buried with a fork in your right hand. Well, seeing the perplexed look on her pastor's face, the woman explained, in all my years of attending church, socials, and potluck dinners, when all the dishes of the main course were being cleared, someone would lean over to me and say, keep your fork. Dessert is yet to be served. And the woman continued telling her pastor, well, dessert was my favorite, is my favorite part of the meal because I know that something really good is coming like a velvety chocolate cake or a deep dish apple pie. So, Pastor, when people see me in the casket with a fork in my right hand, I want, and they ask, what's with the fork? I want you to tell them, keep your fork, because the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. What a message. What a promise of life. What a promise of life to live by. What a message to share with our children. What a message to share with our grandchildren. What a message to share with the neighbors all around this church. What a message to share with all the people in this city. What a message to share with all the people in Michigan and the United States and to the four corners of the earth. There's a reason why Jesus says in this vision, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And the reason is this. Because they are trustworthy and true. And it's these words, this vision, that gives us hope to live this day and assures us that in Christ, the best is yet to come. That's what we want to deliver to a world that so desperately needs Jesus. Amen. And now may the peace of God which surpasses all understanding Keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.